This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator and professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. What's going on over in the Tax Museum today? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot of action today. It's kind of a slow Tuesday morning. All right. Talk to me about what's on tap at Tax Chats today. So we have on Tax Chats, Andrew Dilnot. Andrew, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm Andrew Dilnot. At the moment, my main job is uh, in the University of Oxford. I'm the head of one of the colleges there. In particular, it's a college called Nuffield College, which is the graduates-only college for social scientists. I've been doing that for 10 or 11 years. Before that, for 10, or, for 10 years, I was the head of another of the colleges in Oxford that also had undergraduates. Perhaps most relevant to what we're talking about today, I spent the 21 years before that working at a place called the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which is one of the research institutes based in the UK that really focuses on taxation. So I spent 21 years of my working life uh, delighting in and working on taxes. Uh, so we're, we're here to talk today about a report that I recently heard about on NPR, I believe, I guess not coincidentally. As a professor, I feel my patriotic duty to listen to NPR. Um, so, and the report is called A Review of the Impartiality of BBC Coverage of Taxation, Public Spending, Government Borrowing, and Debt. So, you could just tell us a little bit about the kind of the origins of that report and uh, what you found? Yeah. And, the, and you were one of the two co-authors, I should say. I was one of the two co-chairs, yeah. The, the BBC is a, is, a big, is a big part of the media landscape in the UK and, and looks to be impartial in all that it does. They've been controversy in the previous decade or so uh, with suggestions that bits of its output were not necessarily impartial. Um, and the BBC, which is uh, independently governed, decided in October, nearly 18 months ago, that it would conduct, have uh, ask for reviews to be conducted of the whole of its output uh, that would be independently chaired. They would split the output up into uh, 10 or 12 chunks. The first chunk they wanted to look at was taxation, public spending, public borrowing and debt. And they asked me and my co-chair, Michael Blastland, to take on chairing that review. We started, uh, I guess, at the end of March last year. We delivered our report in, at the end of November. It was published last month. So that sounds like a monumental task. And if somebody asked me, could you figure out if NPR, our kind of maybe sort of version of BBC here in the United States, is biased or unbiased, I would have a really hard time thinking about how to even begin such a task. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did to tackle such a task? Scott, I think you're absolutely right. And we had exactly that thought, which is partly why we did it, because we thought, actually, this can be fun and interesting. Most discussions of impartiality in the media tend to be focused on what's going on during election times. And they're, they're simply is this bias to the left or to the right? And our sense was that wasn't really going to work for taxation, public spending, debt and borrowing. There was something a bit richer required. The, the, the biggest single stream of work that Michael and I did with wonderful support from 
uh, our secretariat team was talking to a lot of people. So we drew up a list of a lot of people outside the BBC and a lot of people inside the BBC who we thought would have views about this and experience this. And we talked about them. We deliberately picked a group that spanned the full range of the political spectrum. So we interviewed a lot of people, well north of a of hundred people, and we spoke to most of them for between half an hour and an hour. We had those interviews transcribed. We read them back, and and in that it felt like kind of learning process, uh, as well as those direct contacts that we had with individuals inside and outside the BBC. We conditioned some audience research, so we actually paid a market research company to. Uh, ask questions of a large group of, of BBC audience and then have much smaller focus groups, more detailed, in-depth discussion with individuals. Uh, we did an analysis of the social media uh, usage of BBC presenters. We also did an enormous amount of looking at and listening to the output. So the BBC now has a wonderful digitized, digital, searchable uh, archive of, of its output over a very long period of time. The particular period we were looking at was a six-month period that ran from between two what we call in the UK fiscal events, so an autumn budget-like thing and a spring budget-like thing from autumn 2020 to spring 2021. Was that by mandate or you just chose to do that to simplify? And we, kind we, of chose, we chose limit your scope. that period because we thought we had to have a, we had to have a period. When we, we, uh, it still meant that there were 11,000 pieces of output that needed to be listened to, looked at, or logged. 11,000 uh, just about taxes? about taxation, public spending and public borrowing. Yeah, it's um, it's talked about a lot. I mean, these are these are these are central things. We didn't feel that we could make a kind of quantitative judgment from that, that you know, the BBC moves is biased one percent to the left or three percent to the right. What we did is we looked at the material and looked at what it talked about a lot and played that back into uh, the interviews that we had and the other the other work that we did. Uh, so it was it was a it was a laborious process. It contained both quantitative and qualitative work. But in the end, we ended up having to make judgments about what we believed. So it seems like to determine whether something is biased or not, you have to know the truth. So I, I suppose if you're interviewing a hundred people, you're going to like pick people who are experts on. You know, let's focus on tax on on tax. And you're assuming what they believe is true. If you're doing market research, you're assuming that like the consumers know something about the truth. How do you know, like, how do you know what the truth is? And from that, how do, can you determine what bias is when, you know, in, with tax, as, as we know, there's a lot of subjectivity, there's a lot of values. And in some regards, there's not really a truth to some tax issues. Yeah. Uh, so that's also absolutely right. I think the way that we try to think about it is that impartiality, particularly for a broadcast or for a podcast like this, means that you need to make sure that you're doing a good job at getting all of the reasonable views expressed and all of the views that are expressed subject to appropriate scrutiny and that you're not jumping to starting assumptions that lead you in a particular direction. So we're not necessarily trying to evaluate exactly which position is right. But we are trying to make sure that all of the reasonable positions are articulated and that they're all subjected to appropriate scrutiny. So let, 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 let me jump to a couple of the conclusions of, of the report, because I think that will help you understand. We ended up saying, actually, we don't find evidence that the BBC is biased to the left or the right in this area. But in particular, bits of this area, it's 
biased in both of those directions. So we found that on the whole, in the coverage of public spending, there was what looked like something that could be characterised as a bias to the left. Whereas in the analysis of the level of, of public sector borrowing, the national debt, it looked as though there was probably a bias that could be characterised as to the right. Now, we don't think that in either case they were politically motivated. If they were, you'd have to think, well, hang on a minute, why are you being biased in both directions? Can you not decide which way you want to go? What was going on was that the framing of the public debate that was being produced by politicians and others was just being accepted. So there's a tendency in the public spending debate to say, well, you know, there's a problem in our UK hospitals that uh, the natural thing is, you know, if we spent a bit more money, that would be better. That's a, that, that without recognising there's always a trade-off. On public debt, there was just a, a presumption that debt is almost always and everywhere bad, or, or, or you could characterise the coverage as being that, without recognising their economists, uh, distinguished orthodox economists, say, well, no, uh, pu- public sector debt taken on for certain sorts of things can be an entirely legitimate and good thing. And there's a debate about whether the level of national debt in the UK is too high or too low. So so what we end up found, ended up finding was not that the BBC was biased in one direction or another politically, but that the journalism wasn't always taking as seriously as it should, making sure that all of the appropriate views were recognised and not simply accepting the framing of the debate of the day. So that sounds like... Um... Kind of an interesting challenge because I know when I teach my classes here, I try, and I'm not sure I'm perfect at this, but I definitely try to expose the students to all of the different sides of an argument. And I'm an expert, but I would imagine that there are a lot of reporters who don't know, don't have a really deep knowledge of economics or of tax or whatever it is. How can a reporter get the necessary information to even ask the right questions so they don't fall into this trap of um, selling something in the same way the politicians do, but instead making a, a more complete picture. Or, or to add to that, should we even expect journalists to be able to, to even be able to do that? I mean, it seems like a pretty big ask to ask a journalist to be an expert on not only journalism, but also like this very nuanced issues in taxation or economics or public policy. So I don't think we can expect them all to be expert. We can't expect them all to be expert. We can expect them all to be questioning. And so one thing I think we can expect of all journalists, particularly in, in public radio, but, but across the board, is not simply to accept what they're told and to always, you know, we want the journalists always to be asking ourselves the question, well, the person I'm interviewing says that, but is she, what assumptions is she making there? So I think always being questioning is a critical part of this. A, a second issue that we found and, and wrote quite a bit about is the relationship between political journalism and economic journalism. And in the UK, and I imagine this is true in the US as well, and in most countries, politics tends to dominate the news and the way that the news is discussed and described. But often that that, that political dominance will be about things that are fundamentally economic. And so one of the things that, that we found when we spoke to lots of people who work for the BBC is that many of the political journalists, including very, very senior political journalists, feel very vulnerable about the economy. They, they recognise that this is not where they're expert. I think we'd say two things to journalists in that position. One is, well, you've got very senior economics journalist colleagues. Go and ask them, talk to them about this. And also sometimes rather than editors leading a story with a 
political journalist, why not think about where the, the big story is, a story that's fundamentally about the economy? Why not go to an economics correspondent, an economics editor first to get an economic perspective on it? So, no, we don't expect journalists to be expert on everything, but these are inevitably technical matters and they need to retain their questioning mind, their, their scepticism, their analytical framework in these areas, just as everywhere else. Is there, do, do you have a sense for, I, let me back up just a little bit. In the United States, I would bet a large amount of money that if I knew the political party affiliation of most journalists, that more than half would be Democrats, which are left-leaning, um, and there would be a relatively smaller fraction that would be Republicans, which are right-leaning. Would you say that there is um, a mass of journalists on one side or the other in the UK? And if so, how does a journalist sort of look past their own personal beliefs when they tackle a task like you're talking about? Sure. Um, so I don't have data for that, but given the demographic of most journalists, you'd expect them to be uh, on average, probably left of where, uh, left of some other line. Um, not all by any means. And we have, we have distinguished journalists um, on both sides of the political debate. And in the case of most BBC journalists, we simply don't know where the, their political prejudice or beliefs lie. And, and indeed, that's a part, important part of the job they're doing. I think my sense of, of that is that, of course, you know, we all have beliefs um, and those beliefs are very important to us. And so they should be. But we're all also able to recognize or ought to be able to recognize where those beliefs lie and to be questioning about them. As I say, if in this area it wasn't that we felt that it was politics that was driving journalism that was less good than it should be, it was not thinking hard enough about it. I mean, let, let me give you another example. Um, in the UK, the two biggest taxes paid by people are income tax and value-added tax. So value-added tax is a sales tax. Um, I, I imagine the same is true in the US, that the two biggest taxes paid by, or two of, actually two of the three biggest taxes. In the UK, there's income tax, there's value-added tax, the sales tax, and then there's also social security contributions that are called national insurance contributions, another direct tax. I, I'm sure the same is true in the US. And in the UK, you don't pay any income tax until your income is more than about... Uh, $15,000 a year, a bit more than $15,000 a year. So actually the poorest third of people in the UK don't pay any income tax at all. Their incomes are too low. But they certainly pay value-added tax, which in the UK is a uniform 20% on not, not all of consumption, but, but most elements of consumption. There's almost no coverage of value-added tax in the British news media. And there's an awful lot of coverage of income tax in the British news media. And there are regions of the country, Wales, the country in the whole of the country of Wales and in uh, a re the northeast region of England, we know there's more value-added tax paid than income tax. In London, there's two and a half times as much income tax paid as value-added tax. And yet, and, and that's what all the discussion is about. So one of the important aspects of the coverage of taxation that we want to talk about was precisely that kind of thing that we need to be alert to who pays what kinds of taxes and if we're missing out in our coverage a set of taxes that is much the most important tax for a large group of the population then we just need to ask ourselves well 
why are we doing that? Um, it, it might still be the right thing to do, but we should at least ask. So is, is your suspicion because, <clears throat> because you know, it is a tax that the wealthier pay, so like it is a more salient thing in London than it is in Wales, or is it because it's a tax that it just inherently is used to redistribute income, or why, why would there be more of a focus on the income tax than a value-added tax? I mean, I, I could say the same thing about in the United States. We very rarely talk about sales taxes. We often talk about income taxes, and even I would say even more so the corporate income tax, which is like less than 10% of our revenue, politicians just talk about it a lot and it gets a lot of airtime in the media because I think it's just like this divisive thing that people want to hear about despite it not actually contributing all that much to government coffers. Yes, yes. And, and what by and large they don't want to hear about is uh, erudite discussions about what the true incidence of the corporate taxes. Although, as, as, as we all know, that it's actually very interesting. And of course, I'm mean, something that I said again and again when I was working at the IFS, uh, only people pay taxes. You know, in the end, the only thing that can pay a tax is a person. In the case of a corporate profits tax, then you know, it might be the shareholders, but it might be the consumers of the output, or it might be the employees of the company. Um, why is it that there's so much focus on income tax in the UK? Um, it's very visible. So at the end of each month in your pay packet, in your pay slip, you can see how much income tax you paid. It's aggregated up and it looks like a big number. The VAT, the value added tax that you pay occurs every time you make a transaction. And at no point in the year do you get a piece of paper that says in the year I paid this amount of tax. It's also, it, it, and, and perhaps because of that visibility, income tax in the UK has become the kind of totemic indicator of what the level of tax is. It's what politicians talk about we saw through the 1980s steady reductions in the, in the rates of income tax often offset by roughly comparable increases in the social security tax um, which were almost identical in their formal and effective incidence but were, were less visible so we have in the in the UK political debate we focus a great deal on income tax VAT it just doesn't have the same salience um, people just don't in the political uh, context, think about it so much. And I think some of it is to do with the, the fact that it's never added up for the individual, you know, in just the same way as I suspect that if I asked you, Jeff and Scott, how much sales tax roughly you pay in a year, if you thought about it for three or four minutes, you could work it out because you know the rate is whatever it is, 6% on 80% uh, of, of your purchases. And you, but, but most people just don't have a sense, whereas every month on your payslip, you see what the income tax is. But it, it has just become a part of the political debate. And that does mean that, that we're missing out the interests of, of a large group of people for whom tax is really important. But it's the consumption tax, not the income tax that matters. This raises another question. Um, when I talk to my students about um, exercising caution when they read the newspapers, um, and I encourage them to do so, in part because I had a funny experience when I was in high school I won the state tennis championship in the state of Utah, and the next day the newspaper in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is a pretty big newspaper, wrote an entire article about how I lost the state championship. And from that point forward, I've always thought, I wonder if I can really trust anything that I read, because that seems like a simple thing to get right, and they got it wrong. Um, but I often tell them to think about the incentives of the newspaper or the media outlet. And clearly they have, in today's day and age, an incentive to generate clicks to, uh, I mean, they don't really sell papers so much anymore, but it's generate clicks or get get um, users to watch a video or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, I would assume that 
even like the government funded media organizations like NPR here or BBC in the UK also have that incentive. And I'm just wondering if, um, if that is what causes focus on certain types of things like corporate income tax or personal income tax, because it, it generates clicks and it has to do with these controversial social topics like income redistribution and wealth redistribution. And is it, does it make sense to try to, from a media's point of view, try to do something other than what generates the clicks? So it does if, if your object is, as is the case for the BBC, to inform and to educate as well as to entertain. Um, and you mentioned that the funding regime, the BBC is publicly funded. It's funded essentially by compulsory subscription. Um, and so it's, although it's active. So, so what do you mean compulsory subscription? I mean, it's funded by taxes that nobody gets a choice. They have to pay. Well, they have to pay if they want to listen to any of the output. But even if they don't listen, don't they still have to pay? No. No, if you don't have a television, you don't have to buy a television license. If you don't have a television and you don't watch any BBC output live, live, live stream, then you don't have to have a television license. Um, oh, hang on just a minute. So you have to buy a television license in the UK? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we don't have such a tax no, in the United States, no. but yeah. So wait, what about, what if I'm streaming on my phone? Does this apply to now yeah. devices that are not longer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're streaming on your phone, yeah, it doesn't have to be if a I television. I buy a phone, there's some... some Part of the phone cost will pay the BBC. No, no, no. Uh, but if you don't have if you don't have a tele if you don't have a television license, then at least in principle, you shouldn't be streaming on your phone. Oh, I see. So you get the television license, and that allows you to stream on your yeah. phone. Yeah, yeah. And so if you if you stream a BBC thing in the UK, it will come. Do you have a tele? So television if you license? want the information, you're compelled to subscribe. Um, but if you just ignore so it's, it, it's a hypothecated tax. It's the it's the most nearly approximate to a hypothecated tax that we have in the UK and and it raises a significant amount of revenue it's why you know the BBC is a well-funded organization although much less well-funded than it used to be relative to others um, but it, it has revenue that it's meant to use to inform educate and entertain and so although it's playing in the same market as other media that are forced to uh, to follow commercial or it, have a strong incentive to follow commercial incentives, it is less affected by that. And uh, so uh, certainly we would argue, and I think the BBC itself would argue that its job is to seek to be impartial. I mean, on, on this subject of clicks, I'm, something else that we were alert to is there is a risk of hype, of hyperbole, of uh, making making stories seem dramatic and of course a bit of that is just good journalism and we want people to read or watch or listen uh, but that's something that that you have to be very careful of and one other related thing that we were very alert to was the danger of headlines i don't know whether this is so true in uh u.s newspapers in the uk but often where a piece in a newspaper gets the tone wrong it will be the headline that does most of the damage the, 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 the main story will be fine, but the headline that's been put on by a sub-editor will exaggerate or mislead. And that's a danger that's also there for the BBC's web output in particular. It's less problematic for broadcast output, either radio or television, but for, for website output, that temptation is always there to, to go for the headline that means that people will read your story, even if it doesn't relate to what the story is really about. 
Yeah, you know, I have a funny, I have a funny experience with that. I've written a couple of op-eds that have been published in the Wall Street Journal, and nobody told me what the headline would be until I read it in the paper the next morning. And and in both cases, the headline was something like "Stop Elizabeth Warren's War on Accounting" or something. And um, like, if you read the article, yeah, it talks about that a little bit, but it's not really focused on Elizabeth Warren or anything like that. But the headline was sort of attention grabbing and maybe a little bit misleading. And I can see that. I think that's a very fascinating arg- argument to make that the, the headlines definitely draw the attention and it's a little bit of a, a clickbait sort of a thing. And, and kind of related to that, so one, uh, do tell me to, to pipe down if this is not what you want to hear about, but one thing that we often heard people, and this is a version really of, of something that Jeff raised, people would say, oh, tax is boring. And I would get very agitated and say, tax is not at all boring. Tax is about the way in which we find the money to educate our children, to build our roads and railways, to have health care for older people and the vulnerable, to protect the environment. You know, it's actually about the, the, the warp and weft of our lives. It's actually sent, you know, uh, America is a slightly lower tax country than the UK, but still the volume of absolutely central activity that is being delivered through taxation and public spending is enormous. And these are things about which we care deeply. So, yes, it's true that there's some slightly arcane knowledge that you need to get before you can fully understand the tax system. It's really, really important. It's much more important than many other aspects of our lives. So we should we should make sure that, that when we're writing about it or speaking about it in the media, we don't sound apologetic or sound as though it's boring. It's not boring. It's really, really interesting and exciting. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, Andrew, we are uh, quickly running out of time, but I would like to thank you so much for joining us and giving us your um, the experiences and sharing with us the experiences that you've had in in this arena of tax, which is quite interesting, describing how we explain taxes to the world at large. Good. It's been great to join you, and I'm looking forward to hearing subsequent episodes of your podcast. All right. Thank you. As always, I'm Scott Dyering, professor of accounting at Duke University. I'm joined by Jeff Hoops, my co-host at the University of North Carolina. And our guest today has been Andrew Dillnut, who is warden of Nuffield College at Oxford. Thank you for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Bye.